Yes, Hakuna Matata from The Lion King starting this week's edition of the Movie Hour. Very good morning to you. It's Richard Dale here until uh, 11 o'clock. No Daniel Mumby or no live Daniel Mumby this week because he's over in Liverpool on his holidays. And uh, I wonder if we'll be uh, watching the uh, the Sunderland game later. There's an interesting thought. Anyway, we have a few of uh, Daniel's best bits from the last few months on the Movie Hour to share with you. Uh, but before that, a little bit live from me. Let me tell you, first of all, what's on at the play house uh, in the next few days first of all this evening at 7 30 they've got the conspirator certificate 12a uh, john wilkes booth is hunted down along with his co-conspirators in the plan to slay president lincoln and then on wednesday evening also at 7 30 it's point blank certificate 15 uh, wanted thief hugo sartet orders his henchmen to take nurse samuel piero's pregnant wife nadia hostage as he tries to evade capture uh, so film in French with English subtitles. Now, tickets for the Playhouse are £6 down to £5.50 for children, students and concessions. Playhouse box office number is Annick 510785. Um, up at the Maltings, uh, some of these probably wouldn't be with Daniel's recommendation, I've got to say. Uh, first of all, tonight at 8 o'clock, it's The Hangover Part 2, comedy film, uh, if you call it that, uh, starring Bradley Cooper, Ed Helms and Zach Galifianakis and a monkey. Uh, not a great film, I've got to say. Uh, one that um, Daniel would like even less tomorrow, which is uh, Transformers Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, that's at 230 uh, let's say he didn't like that film, and we'll hear more about that in a moment. Uh, Monday um, evening, 8 o'clock, half-price Monday, of course, at the Maltings, and it's The Roommate Certificate 15, a thriller starring Minka Kelly, Leighton Meester, Cam Gijonde, Daniel Harry, uh, Matt Lanter, and Ali Michelka. We do wish Danny was, Daniel was here this morning. He's much better on those than I am. Uh, Tuesday, um, it's uh, Kung Fu Panda, um, computer animated uh, comedy drama. Uh, quite a good film, actually. And then Wednesday evening at 8 o'clock, Cedar Rapide, a comedy starring Ed Helms, John C. Riley, and N. Hesh. So, quite a few for you to choose from this week. Mortong's box office number is 01289 330999. And tickets for the Mortings films, £5, except, of course, uh, Half Price Monday, when it's £2.50. So that's the local films. What's going on nationally at the moment? Well, number 10, uh, one that's got uh, quite a bit of critical acclaim is The Guard. One that's got slightly less critical acclaim is Zookeeper. That's at number nine. Bridesmaids, uh, again, done well with the critics. And uh, I've heard some good reports back from some of my friends, so normal people like it as well. That's at number eight. Number seven, it's been slammed by critics, but the kids seem to be enjoying it. Uh, Horrid Henry, the movie. And the cast list is pretty well a who's who of uh, of Britain's show business. Uh, incredible cast list for that one. Uh, Horrible Bosses, that's at uh, number six this week. Cars 2, not getting very very good reviews either is at number five captain america is at number four the latest of the summer blockbusters mr popper's penguins is at uh, number three 
Uh, I think Daniel quite liked that, if I remember our discussion. Super 8 is at uh, number 2. And the final Harry Potter stays at number 1, of course. Critically acclaimed... Not the greatest film, of favourite film of people at Lionheart Radio, I've got to say, um, but it seemed to do well enough at the uh, Annick Playhouse over the last week and a half, couple of weeks. Uh, I've got to say, when I saw it, I didn't particularly enjoy it. And um, Tom, uh, our other film critic who's on, on a Tuesday night, saw it and he didn't like it either. Although for different reasons, because he thought the director made the best job he could of a bad book. I thought the director made a bad job of what wasn't a bad book. But whatever you uh, think to get there, it wasn't the greatest film of all time. So, that's the the top ten. Uh, ones to recommend to go see? Well, I guess uh, Harry Potter, if you haven't been to see it yet. Um, Super 8, Captain America, Bridesmaids. There's quite a few good films around at the moment. Um, we'll be having a look in a bit more detail at the new releases, I'm sure, when Daniel's back next Saturday. But Film of the Week really does look it's going to be Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, a bit of a prequel, of course, to the uh, to the films which have gone on for many, uh, many years. Uh, my mum, if she was here today, would say you could never beat Charlton Heston. Um, but, uh, she'd say that about anything with Charlton Heston in. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see this one, and it really tries to answer the question of uh, what happened before uh, the apes took over. How did it happen? And it sort of conjectures now, and uh, it could have happened as, an, as a mistake of uh, medical research, and that's the whole of the uh, the the, the uh, con- pretext to um, rise of the planet of the apes. It opened on uh, Thursday evening, and um, it's will be interesting to see how well it does in the charts. I think it could be one of the summer's great hits. Certainly uh, open to pretty good uh, critical acclaim. And uh, having read some reviews on it over the last couple of days, there's some fantastic CGI to get the uh, the faces of the apes. Should be very good indeed. Well, you may have noticed from me going through the uh, the top ten that one film that has finally dropped out is Transformers, and that's something that one Daniel Mumby will be very happy with. This was his preview of it a few weeks ago, and I thought, well, I better try and get some balance in first. I heard uh, Tom Davidson absolutely uh, slamming this one in his show on Tuesday night here on Lionheart Radio. Right. And I thought before you had a go, I was going to address the balance. So right. I was down in Southampton yesterday and picked up um, their local listings magazine, and they've got a reviewer called Drew Bridger, who says, and then you can respond. After the laughing stock Revenge of the Fallen made of the franchise, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Dark of the Moon could be just one more, more of the same from Michael Bay turning what was once a legitimate classic animation into something that involved characters trying to appeal to the young generation and failed. Also, it had Megan Fox. The good news, Dark of the Moon looks like it could well have corrected all the mistakes the franchise has made thus far, and it doesn't star Megan Fox. Over to you, Daniel. Can I just ask, was that was that a review of the film, or is that a preview based upon trailers and so forth? Because um, that's a listings magazine as opposed to a review magazine. Yeah, um, I think it's... Yeah, it's, I think it's meant to be a review. Yeah, just the way it's phrased yeah. is like could have addressed yes. as opposed yeah. to has redressed. Okay, let's get it out of the way. Transformers Dark of the Moon in 3D, which is the new film by Michael Bay. <sighs> Who is 
quite possibly the worst filmmaker in the world at the moment. And no, it's the third film based on the Hasbro toys, and the story is... Story. Um, in 1969, the Apollo 11 missions go to the moon, and they found some alien robot parts on the moon, and now the robots have sort of... have returned to Earth to get back this thing called the Ark, and there's going to be one final showdown between the, the Autobots and the Decepticons to stop Megatron taking over the world. But none of that is relevant. I mean, essentially, one of the things that a lot of... Transformers fans have been saying in defense of this film is, oh, well, this one actually has a story. But it's like, you know, the Pirates 4 was like, oh, it's based on a novel. Yeah. You took the title from a novel and then you made <laughs> it up as you went along. There's a plot for about 20 minutes and that plot itself is a rip-off of Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel or Isaac Asimov and so forth. And then it just gets back into what it was before. Um, people often say to critics when, you know, people like you and I talk about action movies on that sort of thing, it's like, oh, don't take it seriously. It's just meant to be a bit of fun. Well, the problem with Transformers is that it isn't fun. It is stupid, boring, loud, incoherent, racist, misogynist, and without any redeeming feature at all. And I mean this, seriously. If you go and see it, shame on you. Right. Let me give you, first off, it's far too long. It's two hours, 34 minutes long, which is 15, yeah, minutes, a long one. 15 yes. minutes longer than 2001 A Space Odyssey, a film that went from the beginning of man to the birth of a new species, and this just goes for two and a half hours of people hitting each other. Um, the final battle sequence alone goes on for an hour. And no, any editor worth their salt will tell you no battle sequence should go on for 60 minutes because no matter how good a battle sequence is, you often can't tell what's going on. In the case of Michael Bay, it's doubly so because he keeps cutting every two seconds because he can't tell a story. You've got the terrible acting. I mean, Sheila Buff turns up again. He's the charisma vacuum. They get John Turturro, Francis McDormand, and John Malkovich on to do a bit of acting in inverted commas to pick up the check and you know, losing all credibility that they had during their work with the Coen brothers. The biggest problem, however, with Transformers for me is the sexualization of it. Because, no, Transformers, as the reviewers yeah. talking about, you know, started off as a kid's toy, then there was a kid's animation in the 80s, then there was an, an animated movie. You know, it's a toy about robots hitting each other. And, you know, it's a kid's toy. I don't have any problem with a toy. But what Michael Bay has done is thinking, okay, well, we've got to turn it into a film about, you know, a kid's toy, but in order to make our money back, we've got to attract the teenage audience. So what we'll do is we'll put in a load of pseudo-pornographic visuals so that all the, the kids can kind of watch the big explosions while the dads can leer over the girls. Mm, that's so not good. It yeah. isn't good. It's not just not good. It's frankly unacceptable. I mean, there's... We mentioned that Megan Fox isn't in this, in this one because I think at the end of the... Sometime last year, there was controversy about her calling Michael Bay Hitler. And, no, suffice to say, she didn't get cast in the new one. So in this one, the, the love interest, so to speak, of Sheila Booth is played by Rosie Huntington-Whiteley, who is an ex-Victoria's Secrets lingerie model that Michael Bay met when he was shooting an advert. And as an indication of the film's attitude to women, the opening shot of Rosie Huntington-Whiteley's character is a sequence of her walking up a staircase with a camera focusing on her backside. That's no, yes. I, yeah. see, I can see why you don't like the film. Well, yes. yeah, but the yeah. point is that it's, it's putting across a view of women, of basically women are like cars, they're just objects to be stared at and exploited. And I'm, it's just not good enough, let alone good enough for a 12A certificate film. Then you've got all the other problems about, you know, the fact that it's in 3D, which is pointless. You've got the racist robots coming back from the first one with the Jamaican adverts to say, we don't do reading, which is completely unacceptable. And it is an early candidate for the worst film of the year. It is so bad, it makes Pirates of the Caribbean 4 look half decent. Uh, Daniel uh, certainly let rip there. I think that's probably the uh, the worst review I've ever heard him do on the Movie Hour. Now, if you're a regular listener to the Movie Hour, you'll know that each week we do feature a cult classic, and we've got a couple of the uh, best ones from this year that Daniel's done. Um, in a few minutes, we'll have a look at If, which is, I think, one of the greatest films of all time, If Rather Disturbed. 
Um, before that, though, uh, he's going to be having a look at Flash Gordon and get us in the mood for it. Well, here's the Queen track. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Right then, it's time for this week's cult movie. Flash Gordon, um, BAFTA nominated, believe it or not, um, adaptation of the comic strips from the 1930s. There'd previously been a kind of whole series of Flash Gordon uh, films and TV series from the 1930s with an actor called Buster Crab in. Um, were you familiar with Flash Gordon before we decided to talk about this? It's one of these ones, the films, uh, as I grew up, I mean, when I remember I was little, I remember when the TV companies had rights to the issue of Star Wars basically every Christmas and Easter, yeah. and it was one of those films that Flash Gordon was in there, Back to the Future trilogy was in there, that was just on, but I never really watched and I've had to watch them as later life to yeah. fully appreciate and, and the story. Interestingly yeah. enough, the age at which you watch Flash Gordon for the first time will kind of affect your opinion of it, but we'll come on to that slightly later. A bit of background information first. Uh, it was uh, produced by the um, recently deceased Dina De Laurentiis, I think died yesterday, um, an extraordinary career. He actually continued his work in sci-fi later when he produced David Lynch's Dune, which is widely considered to be a total mess, but without that we wouldn't have Blue Velvet, so it's it's not a total disaster. Yeah, that's how that features Sting coming, coming out of, out of steam wearing nothing but a pair of blue wings on his undercrackers. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> yes. It also features Brad Dourif, who is no later Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings, wearing the most comical pair of eyebrows you have ever seen. <laughs> but yeah, more of that. The other interesting thing about it, and this is a crowd surprise, it's directed by Mike Hodges, who is the guy who made Get Car which is one of the kind of really important early 70s gritty crime thrillers. It's the one, you know, Michael Caine plays the London gangster who comes up to um, Newcastle and or Gateshead for the funeral of his brother and it, it transpires that there may have been foul play and it's one of the most important films of the early 70s. He came to this project after being fired from directing Damon, uh, Damien Omen 2 and this was his first completed film. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. He was, he was apparently kicked off it after three weeks for working too slowly. Right. But uh, yeah, and it's just, you wouldn't think, you know, on the one hand, incredibly gritty, nasty, savage crime thriller, and on the other hand, comic book. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit of a jump. Um, so let's, we'll play um, some of the Queen soundtrack of this, which is probably the reason why the film is so famous after this, but we'll, we'll just uh, give you the plot to start off with. Flash Gordon, who's played by real-life American footballer Sam J. Jones, uh, he's a celebrated American footballer who's flying back home to a game with uh, a travel agent called Dale Arden, who's played by uh, Melody, Melody Anderson. Uh, a number of freak weather conditions caused their plane to crash land near the laboratory of a Dr. Hans Zarkov, played by uh, Indian actor, <laughs> played by uh, Indian actor Chain Paul, who believes that all these disturbances in the weather are down to some kind of paranormal activity from outer space. They take off in his rocket and enter the universe of the evil Ming the Merciless, played by Ingmar Bergman's favourite actor, Max von Sydow, or Max von Sydow, depending on how you pronounce it. It transpires that he is planning to destroy the Earth by making it collide with the Moon, which he is moving with this, you know, intergravitational ray, and they have to stop him by uniting all the different peoples of Ming's universe, including the Hawkman featuring our very own Brian Blessed. Um, I think at this point, to give people a flavour of what the film is like, we should play the, the opening title sequence which was recorded by Queen and then released as a single in 1980 so uh, without any further ado. If you yes, this is one that needs to be turned up to 11 without doubt. Here we go. And there it was. The best song you'll hear all day, I've got to yeah. say. <laughs> well, this is the thing. The Queen, I mean, I'm not the biggest Queen fan anyway and the soundtrack album of a piece on its own is quite kind of up in the air. But when you put it next to the film, it somehow kind of makes sense. It, like I said when I introduced it, it's, it's very much a film that 
your opinion of it will vary greatly depending on how old you are when you see it. I mean, I first saw Flash Gordon, because I've seen it about three or four times. I th first saw it when I was about ten or eleven years old, and it's one of those films where if you're a young boy, you can't believe your luck, because he's you no know, big action sequences and explosions and bright colours and scary villains and so forth. And then when you get older, you watch it again as a teenager, you think, actually, this is deeply embarrassing. You know, you've got Max von Sudo effectively dressing up as Fred Fu Manchu, you've got hammy acting, you've got special effects that would make Thunderbirds look slick. And yes, yeah. So, well, one thing which I've, I've been trying to catch up on in clips that I saw, there's uh, a fight scene in it. If you use the word fight in inverted commas, where yes, with has an American football theme on it because this guy's an American footballer. He picks up a globe or an orb or it's, something. It's a, it's a metal orb of some kind. And uh, he just he, he then just just because originally he's getting his head kicked in by all the baddies, uh, then someone throws him a football and he's like, ah. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll knock them up. And then fits where the the, the the bodies have huddles and stuff like that. <laughs> and watching it now, you just think, Ugh. but at the time, I think if I was about, if I could go back to ten year old Paul, I'd probably be sat there going, best film ever. Yeah, and <laughs> edge of the seat sort of stuff. I, yeah, I don't think I ever had that extreme reaction, <laughs> but it is really good. I saw this again recently, and it's it. It's very much now that I get the joke. Because here's here's the thing. Here's the, the downside for Flash Gordon, if you like. There are a lot of technical shortcomings with it. I mean, it was made on the cheap. Uh, so you have, like I say, um, very dodgy special effects. There's a moment in it early on where the the rocket of Hans Zarkov and friends are going into Ming's universe, and it's clearly a piece of acetate being moved across the screen <laughs> a few frames at a time. Like you've got... Button moon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like button. It is button moon. In, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, then you've got things like... The clouds of Cloud City, which looks like somebody just got a marbling kit and shot it from an odd angle. You've got cinematography where there's so much red on screen, it's like you're watching the whole film through a vat of claret. Uh, but despite all that, it is actually quite well directed in the sense that Mike Hodges is somebody who knows how to do action set pieces. He knows where to put the camera and he does choreograph it very well. The plot of it, I mean, we kind of gave you an introduction to it, it's incredibly silly, but basically what happens is the, you know, Flash Gordon and friends get separated, he gets seduced by the Emperor's daughter who brings him, who stops him being executed, he goes off to a forest planet to you know, try and win the allegiance of Prince Bright. No, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. And there are loads of kind of contrivances where you have to kind of suspend disbelief a lot, like, isn't it a great coincidence that the plane that uh, Dale and Flash crash landed right outside the laboratory just before the rocket was about to launch? Or, um, for instance, there's a whole sequence where um, Dr. Hans Zarkov is about to be brainwashed, which is kind of built up and up and up. It's like he's going to lose his mind. And then five minutes later, you see him and he's fine because he just <laughs> remembered bits of the Talmud and that apparently brought him out of the trance. Um, and there's also, I mean, I don't want to give the ending away because the ending is quite funny. But well, I think we're, we're all familiar with the end that he saved every one of us. <laughs> well, very good. <laughs> but there is, a, there is a scene involving the Merciless having a very um, close encounter with a spaceship and it's like, you could have moved. It was heading straight for. <laughs> but here's the thing. In the end, none of that really matters. And here's why. There is a key comparison between this and another film from 1980 called Do You familiar with that? Uh, I've, I've, I'm familiar with that. I'm familiar it's with a, the it, song. Yeah, um, film by uh, can't remember who it's directed by, but it's it's it's, a, it's the one in which Olivia Newton-John plays the daughter of Zeus, who is sent down from uh, you no know, the heavens to instruct Gene Kelly to create a roller disco, <laughs> and it has a soundtrack from Electric Light Orchestra. Exactly. <laughs> the problem with that film, which makes it one of the naffest ever made, was it basically took an incredibly ridiculous story and took it so seriously that it was laugh out loud funny. The thing with Flash Gordon is that it, you know looking at it now, it knows it's silly because the original Flash Gordon. 
Gordon comics were, you know, boys on adventures. It's, you know, ordinary guys with six packs on faraway worlds fighting baddies to save the world and get the girl. It's not supposed to be treated like Batman or Superman. And it's, you know, interesting that at the time when Richard Donner was trying to, you know, do the Superman with all the Christ allegory stuff going on, mm -hmm. at the other end of the scale you have Mike Hodges basically saying, yeah, let's have a bit of fun with it and just play it all for Camp Value. It's, it's, as well, it's one of the films that you watch afterwards and you will remember it and you will, you will, it will have an effect on you rather than, like, every sort of, nowadays, there's a lot of generic action films you just sort of go, meh. Yeah, it, yeah, I mean, it had Shia LaBeouf in it, it wasn't that great. It doesn't have any lasting effect, whereas something like this, you'd be talking about it for ages. Exactly, even if, even if you're only talking about it because it's so left field, you don't know how to react to it. Um, I mean, the thing is, like I said, the, the comic books are not supposed to be taken seriously. There are some commentators out there who will argue at length that Flash Gordon is essentially an allegory for the West defeating fascism. Because there is a bit at the end where, you know, Flash Gordon unites all the rivaling worlds to fight the evil emperor. And you can read into that, but I think that's really stretching a point. The film is worth seeing just for the cameos alone. I mean, quite apart from the fact that it famously features Brian Blessed as the head of the Hawkman. You know, he gets to say, you know, Gordon's alive. <laughs> and there's the big uh, kind of scene of the, the Hawkman swooping down on um, Ajax's rocket, which has been sent into the clouds to kill them all. Uh, but there's also um, Timothy Dalton, isn't it? Uh, future James Bond. And I actually think Timothy Dalton's the best Bond. I know that's controversial, but... I'm, I'm with you on that one because good. them two films just was so straight laced and it wasn't as gritty as the Daniel Craig's ones and whatnot but you wouldn't have the Daniel Craig ones without the Dalton films but though, yeah they were just I can't watch a, a Roger James Bond I cannot watch him he's yeah. cringe really there's a wonderful moment in License to Kill I think where um, Dalton is he's in a cocaine processing factory and he's hanging off the edge of a conveyor belt and one of the Bond girls comes up to him and says are you alright <laughs> and if that had been Roger Moore he would have just you know pulled himself up with a finger straightened his tie <laughs> raised an eyebrow and moved on but instead Dalton's just like just turn the machine off <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, that's exactly how you do it. Yeah. But he's in this, he plays Prince Barin, who is, you know, the head of a woodland kingdom. He's sort of in love with the, with the Emperor's daughter, but he's, it's a kind of on-off, and he and Flash kind of... There's a really unusual scene, because he's dressed in green spandex, with a kind of village people moustache, and there is a scene in which he and Flash Gordon fight with whips, which is obviously quite homoerotic for, you know, people of a certain disposition. <laughs> there are also cameos from Richard O'Brien, who's the creator of Rocky Horror Picture Show and also the host of The Crystal Maze. He plays a double-crossing pipe player. Uh, Robbie Coltrane is in it very briefly as the guy who drops Flash Gordon off at the airfield. And, um... Deep Roy, who was the Oompa Loompa, who was, you know, replicated throughout in Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he has a very strange supporting part as one of Aura's kind of slave, and he gets dragged around on a chain, which is, you know, slightly questionable, but also just not interesting a, to see. You have to remind us, I've watched, after watching the trailer and watching the clips and stuff, there's a guy who looks a little bit like Doctor Doom. Who's that character? That, I think it's, it's either Krylus or Critus, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's the guy with the metal face. Yeah, is he like the henchman or... Yeah, he's the kind of right-hand man. I mean, that, you've actually fed this on really nicely because there is a big argument that Flash Gordon in its original form, not the, the 1980 version, was a big influence on Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And certainly you could argue that Krylus was the Darth Vader of his day. You know, it's the kind of second in command to the Emperor and he's, you know, dressed in metal and he's evil. He's, he's a little bit cooler. <laughs> yeah, he is a little bit cooler actually, <laughs> although I like Max von Sydow very much. Um, they're inter interestingly enough, if you look at this version of Flash Gordon and then you watch Return of the Jedi, you will think, Hang on a minute, Lucas ripped this off a bit, because there are kind of obvious similarities, quite apart from the fact that, you know, it's, you know, heroes fighting against an evil emperor who wants to conquer the galaxy, who's assisted by a guy who's essentially a robot. Mm -hmm. You have, um, you know, 
uh, community of heroes living in the treetops who are all dressing green. And there is a monster with a beak and tentacles that tries to swallow people up, which, you know, in Return of the Jedi is the Sarlacc. Yes. So, no, I mean, there's a whole kind of debate, you know, how much of Star Wars was ripped off from things from Lucas's youth or how much was original idea. And I'm not going to get into that debate because, frankly, I can't be bothered. But there is a whole section of Flash Gordon which to which Return of the Jedi owes a huge debt, even if they're not willing to acknowledge it. But I think the main reason to recommend it is that, it's, like you say, it's distinctive and it is just such good fun. I mean, I watched this again a few weeks back and I just couldn't stop laughing. Not laughing and like, this is pathetic and shoddily made, even though it is slightly shoddily made, but just because everyone in it seems to be having fun and they know that it's camp and they know it's ridiculous. And it it zips along, it's, no, it's less than two hours long, I think, it's, I think it's actually only 90 minutes, and it's just a triumph of both the sublime and the ridiculous. And if you want something to kind of unwind to after a long day at work, you can't really go better than Flash Gordon. I would say with, with Christmas rapidly approaching, um, it's bound to be on over the... Yeah, the I, would, I wouldn't bet against it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, just want to put on the old Sky Plus when it comes on there. Absolutely. But yeah, so when you watched it, it didn't feel, because you've seen it a few times, it didn't feel like an ordeal. You weren't like saying, oh, I can't wait to get this. Well, it this is the thing, the last- sort of flowed through. This is the thing, the last time I'd watched it, I didn't really like it, because I last watched it when I was in my late teens, I was about 17 or 18, and I thought, this isn't very good. And then I kind of, I'd rented it, because I'd uh, heard of it, it was like the 30th anniversary or something, and then I put it back on and actually thought, I've been so wrong about this, this is really good. <laughs> We should get you to watch it every year <laughs> and review it every year. Well, just kind of love, hate, love, hate, love, ever, yeah. And it'd be, it'd be like the the Star Trek sort of sequel theory that you'll one year you like it, one year you won't. You'll just think, yeah, it's rubbish. This year is better. This year, that sort of thing. Well, I'm not a real Star Trek fan, but I'll take your word for that. Should we, should we text him? We should subject him to Flash Gordon every year <laughs> on his birthday <laughs> forever more. There are worse things in the universe. Daniel Mumby and Paul Young there, referring, reviewing rather, Flash Gordon. It is a great film. I do love it. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. We've been waiting for this for ages. Yes, we have. Um, so do you want me to set it up and then yeah. we'll play the trailer? Okay, so we're doing If with four dots after it. Uh, 1968 film directed by Lindsay Anderson, who is one of the most important and the most underrated directors in British cinema. I mean, he began, he's had a very unusual career because he began his career as a film critic. I think he was writing for, um, what well, I think it was the Left Book Club is where he started off. And then he made a series of short documentaries with a couple of other filmmakers, Carol Rice, who later made The French Left tenant's woman and tony richardson who was a very good theater director and together they formed what was known as the free cinema movement of the mid-50s this sort of this low budget documentary series which sort of which made a lot of impressionistic black and white films about things like covent garden market and dreamland resort now taking subjects which hadn't been seen on British screens a lot and sort of bringing new stories to it. Prior to this, he directed Richard Harris in a film called This Sporting Life, which is one of the best films ever made about rugby. And yeah, I think I remember that launched well, the yes. career of Richard Harris both as an actor and as a hellraiser, because there's all yeah. sorts of stories about what Richard Harris did <laughs> on that film. <laughs> I'm sure, yes. Yeah. No, and even on the Harry Potter stuff, he was, no, yeah. no I say, cladding around. It's also notable for the fact that this is the screen debut of Malcolm McDowell, whom I absolutely adore, and not just because of Clockwork Orange. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's an actor who subsequent career has sort of not 
it's not been the career he's deserved because of how good he is. I mean, obviously, he's in Clockwork Orange. And he's in the sequels to this, which are A Lucky Man and Britannia Hospital. Yeah. There's also a really good comedy he made in the late 70s called Time After Time, where he plays either H.G. Wells or the descendant of H.G. Wells, who has to travel through time to stop Jack Yes, Ripper, I remember that. And yes, they end up yeah. in 70s San Francisco. <laughs> Brilliant actor. Yeah. Brilliant actor. So this is his screen debut, and I think he was about 19 when they made it, and yeah. you can... Certainly from someone who loves Clockwork Orange, which I do, you can sort of see all the, the aspects of his performance which sort of carried over into Kubrick's work three years afterwards. So back in 1968, we used to have the Pathé News and B-movies, so we didn't used to get trailers, so mm -hmm. I haven't been able to find one. But this is a little bit of a review programme, an extract from it, which was done a few years ago. I remember when I was a kid seeing stills from the movie, the very idea of these English schoolboys running around with firearms was kind of like there was just something so fundamentally taboo to me. I think more than any other film that Lindsay Anderson ever made, If created the biggest schism in the audience. Because it's not that Lindsay Anderson wanted to destroy cinema. He wanted to reinvent it. a very big interest in 70s cinema when a lot of early 70s cinema in particular is about that cynicism coming through so films like Get Carter and The French Connection and A Clockwork Orange to some extent which you could almost call if sort of more twisted cynical cousin because it sort of takes the idealism of if and completely transmutes it so that youth aren't a force for good they're a force for malice aside from anything else it's also difficult because of the way in which countercultural films often communicate their politics because because they were a lot of things like, for instance, I suppose the American equivalent would be Easy Rider. Yeah. Because a lot of those films, they assume that the people who are watching it have a kind of innate understanding of the politics as well. They were sort of made by revolutionaries for revolutionaries. And therefore, looking at it outside of that context, it's often, they often come across as more impenetrable and quite dated. Particularly when you look at things like... The, the Hollywood studios attempts to cash in on the counterculture movement. They, have you heard of a film called Skidoo, which I think had Marlon no. Brando in? No, this, try, this thing that Warner Brothers made in the late 60s, which tried to cash in on the whole hippie movement and notice they, they took a load of teenagers, basically gave them what they thought was LSD and filmed them for a couple of hours and it was really terrible. Or of course Myra Breckenridge, yep. which is you know, the big Hollywood catastrophe of the early 70s with uh, Raquel Welsh. So, when I reviewed uh, Take Me Home Tonight a few weeks ago, which is where we first mentioned it, yes. um, I, I posited the idea that it was the greatest high school movie ever made. And I would argue that because it has the best of every possible world. It's got earthy black comedy with no adolescent undertones because there are there is talk about sort of bodily functions and yeah. puberty and so forth it's got artistic flights of fantasy there are these wonderful surrealistic dream sequences particularly the one in which they find the weapons which just happen to be hidden under the school uh there's savage satire of well not just the establishment but established order whether it's in the shape of teachers or the parents or the police because they get involved as well there's the personal quandaries of the central character, like the sequence of McDowell being whipped in the gym in which he's kind of, it's leading him towards his final act of rebellion. It's basically everything you want from a coming-of-age film and everything you want from a high yeah. school film. And very hard to watch it now and sort of realise 
it was a film of its uh, of its period. I mean, I, when I first went to see it, it was with a bunch of uh, public school kids, mm -hmm. and they came out probably more disturbed than I did. I mean, <laughs> I, I thought it was a interesting film, <laughs> put it mildly, um, but uh, quite enjoyed it. They came out seriously disturbed because I think they could identify with so much of the first half of the film. Yes. Um, and then they sort of realising, you know, how how close they may have been to the edge themselves. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, bear in mind, of course, that Lindsay Anderson. He was certainly Oxford educated, but he might have been public school as well, yes. so imagine how he must have felt making it. I mean, even in my days, going to uh, a state uh, grammar school, as I did in the early 70s, uh, we used to have a cadet force, and yeah, every Friday afternoon, every kid over 13 would turn up in army uniform or, mm. uh, or RAF uniform, and yeah, they'd be going around with the guns, thankfully, without ammunition in. Yes. Um, otherwise, I'm sure there's one headmaster that would have been uh, <laughs> well up in the target yes. range. But, uh, um, yeah. It was a very odd life in schools in those days, particularly the public schools, because they were so brutal, because they were these kids sort of cooped up and, you know, isolated from reality. It was, uh, so it was interesting. I mean, they could see, you know, just how close that they may have been, albeit they'd presumably not found the arms. So Yeah, I was going to say, did they express regret of not having found <laughs> that? It was uh, definitely a film of the era and very realistic. And I think if you watch it now, you'd think, no, this can't possibly be right. Well, this is the thing. I mean, speaking as someone who only saw the film, you know, a couple of years ago, first time around, so I wouldn't have had any first-hand experience of that era. I think the thing that struck me most about it was this combination of naturalism in the way that the characters are portrayed and these surrealistic flights of fantasy, which sort of... Because if the, if the gun scene had just been played straight, then it would be ridiculous. Yeah. But the fact that Lindsay Anderson shoots it in a very dreamlike fashion as if it's, it's, their de it's a representation of their desire to rebel rather than the actual act of them getting the weapons. But we'll come on to that in a second. Yeah. Now, when I say... No, the greatest high school film ever made. It does seem like an odd choice considering the kind of schooling. I mean, like you say, public school then and no, to some extent now they have a reputation for being sort of these very hermetically sealed communities and you know, with people very distant from the outside world. I mean, you look at... You look at, and most of the time, public school set dramas are very safe affairs. I mean, you look at things like the Browning version from the 30s or Goodbye Mr. Chips or Tom Brown's School Days. Yeah. There's little, there's potential for good, well-worn drama, but you wouldn't associate them automatically with rebellion or yeah. revolution because they're very ordered, very staid, very... Yes, because the school mechanism always won. Yes, the school always wins. Oh, of course, you, you look at things like... Um, Billy Bunter, I suppose, which could fit into that as well. So the first coup of If, for me, is that it manages to be aware of the sort of the advantages of public school in the way that, no, it's very intelligent and very sophisticated, while simultaneously and very overtly savaging every single aspect of it. I mean, the very, the title of If is is every bit as drenched in defiance as everything else in the film because there's a famous Rudyard Kipling poem called If yes. with three dots yeah. which is the one that if you've seen um, Mike Bassett England manager it's the one that Ricky Tomlinson recites when he's trying to get the journalists yeah. on his side as they go into the film. you've seen Mike Bassett England manager yes I have yes. Yeah, it's, it's not bad actually very is it? good film yeah I quite enjoy it even though it is a bit rough around the edges so because there's a and then so you have the the Rudyard Kipling poem then the sort of the extra the fourth dot in the if ellipsis is like it's an impudent revision <laughs> so it's like yes I'm just going to put another dot here just to annoy you and uh, the, certainly the film gives the key line if you want to understand the film is there's the penultimate line in the Kipling poem which is yours is the earth and everything that's in it which when Kipling wrote that poem it was about if you conform to all these ideals of what makes a great man 
then you will succeed in life. Whereas what the characters in the film do is effectively take that and read is actually yours and the earth is everything in it means we can take over the world and live our lives the way we want to. And if you get in our way, you're going to be killed. So it's a very interesting subversion of that yeah. old no imperialist very conservative idea so that you simultaneously understand it while understanding how bankrupt it all is and this kind of this interesting balance is reflected in the characters because on the one hand there is a a very bitter opposition between age and youth because on the one hand you've got the masters and the parents and the prefects who are very much entrenched in you know the pre-war imperial mindset on which you know the emphasis is on serving one's country and knowing one's place and then that's contrasted with the younger boys who feel no attachment to these values and regard everyone as you know irrelevant and stuffy and outdated yeah. but there are instances this is what makes it more interesting and smarter than a lot of countercultural films there are instances of crossover between the two where you see characters sort of weighing up where their allegiances truly lie on the one hand you've got um some of the teachers there's a, a history professor played by graham crowden who turns up in the two sequels as the mad professor who creates the massive artificial brain in the end of britannia hospital in which i said was one of the creepiest scenes in 80 cinema and he turns up um, in, um, in one of his scenes in which he's coming along the corridors on a bicycle and he kind of cycles right into the class while singing to be a pilgrim and dismounts and starts talking about no history is run by evil men on the other hand, you might think this, and it's, no, it's yeah. a teacher attempting to sort of get down with the kids, but in a more convincing way. And then there's the running joke about the headmaster who sort of calls the boys into his office and just keeps saying, I understand. And of course, that has an ironic twist because that's his closing lines before he gets a bullet in the head in the last scene, not to give too much away. So on that, so not all the headmasters and the prefects are portrayed as sort of stuffy old bores. But yeah. on the other hand, you don't have all the students as being like didactic flag waves and just empty political puppets. Um, have you seen a film called Zabriskie Point? No. From the early 70s, um, Michelangelo Antonioni film, Antonioni who made things like The Passenger and yeah. Blow Up and so forth, and that was his his second English language film, which is notable mainly for the fact that it has a soundtrack by Pink Floyd, and that, that starts with a 10-minute sequence of students at an American university just arguing about Marxist politics, and, you know, goes on a bit, like a lot of Antonioni's <laughs> work, but the point about that film is that you... Because Antonioni was making that from an outsider's point of view, because he was an yeah. Italian filmmaker, you never got the sense that these were real people. They were just sort of vessels for his own political concourse. Yeah. Whereas with If, they do feel like fully rounded people who just happen to be a little bit political. And although Malcolm McDowell's character does have sort of posters of Lenin and Che Guevara adorning his wall, most of his instinct of rebellion it's much more romantic with a capital r because it's not about saying let's crush the capitalist pig dogs and you no know, change the world in favor of marxism because anderson was quite a left winger yeah but it's more a case of even in the shadow of a possible nuclear holocaust i want the right to live my life in the most joyous and freely expressed way that i want and i don't want any of this authority getting in the way so when he rejects the authority of the school it isn't a rejection on political grounds it's just a rejection of all forms of yeah. authority because like i want to live my life the way i want and no one can tell me who i am there's within that there is a large amount of the film which is about sexual liberation which you know if as the teen movie scene goes on in the 70s and 80s that becomes a very running theme and certainly by the time you get to animal house and porkies that's become the main meat and potatoes you no know, characters wanting to lose yeah. their virginity um one of the best sequences in the film is a surreal sequence where travis and one of his friends go into town, randomly decide to steal a motorbike, as you do, yeah. and they drive off and come to a roadside uh, cafe and uh, they order coffee in a slightly impudent way, you know, requesting whether it's black yeah. or white. And then 
uh, Mick Travis puts a piece of classical music on the jukebox and randomly starts having an affair with a waitress. And no, it, like I say, if you say it like that, it sounds like well, don't be stupid. That's absurd. But it's it's shot in such a wonderful way that you kind of see all those emotions coming out and now yeah. outside of the confines of the school this is the first chance they've had to properly express themselves and not yeah. in a sort of awkward cliched public school way of just you know, not knowing where to put your hands or something yes. like that and there are other sections like that where um there's a, one of the black and white bits where one of the younger boys is watching one of Mick Travis's friends training on the parallel bars and he just watches him for about two or three minutes as he goes through all the moves and you know that yeah. they begin a sort of homoerotic encounter i mean i don't think anderson it's sort of, it's not condoning free love per se in the sort of way that, you know, hippie movies often did, but it's, it's a reinforcement of the need of, you know, the running theme of the film, which is society should be shaped by the people, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, that brings us on to Anderson's own sort of, his background in the film, because like I said, he was probably public school trained, certainly he went to Wadham College, Oxford, which I don't know a lot of sort of Etonians and um, Harvard and former, not Harvard, uh, Herovians, that's a, certain, a lot of those went to Wadham College. So the film is on the one hand about these characters, but also there is a lot of it which is about Anderson taking his stand against the values of England and English cinema. Because one of the things that he had tried to do as a documentarian was to, to sort of push away the post-war malaise of British cinema, because you look back to the sort of things like the late 40s and early 50s, yeah. you know, when Alfred Hitchcock was in America and Michael Powell had sort of, you know, gone past his prime. I mean, obviously he'd make Peeping Tom later, but he was he was making sort of run-of-the-mill war films like Ill Met by Goon, My, My Moonlight. Not Ill Met by Goonlight, that's the parody. Um, cinema was in a sort of, it was in a rut where it just kept producing slightly ropey comedies and yeah. American melodramas and there were, they weren't real people in them anymore. So what Anderson did was he took his camera into places like Inner City Bradford and Nottingham and Derby and so forth and brought these new stories to light. And the film of If is basically like him taking the institution that made him, in this case public school, and saying, you know what, thanks but no thanks, you are not relevant anymore, you are stopping the real honest people from coming through and you're going to have to step aside. Yeah. And throughout the film we see the community trying to drill the students in with these kind of bastions and these values of honour and duty and fighting the good fight, only for these ideas to crumble into absurdity when they actually get applied. I'll give you a couple examples of that. Uh, first one is uh, about three quarters of the way through the film, um, the chaplain gives a sermon about fighting for Christ and saying no, the greatest sin of all is desertion and he sort of ties it in with Judas Iscariot. And then they go out and have the war games and the chaplain approaches Mick Travis only to discover that Travis has got real bullets in his gun <laughs> and he becomes this quivering wreck in the corner and that's an expression of the idea of, you know, you can talk the talk but when you actually walk the walk yeah. it doesn't work. Yes. And of course there's that really bizarre section afterwards when the boys are being told off by the headmaster and he says, okay, now you can say sorry and he the chaplain literally appears out of a drawer and comes and shakes the hand and gets <laughs> back in the drawer it's like i'm afraid to see them anymore and then there's a sequence at the end of the film where the a general has sort of come in on i think it's prize giving day or something to speak yeah. to the boys about you now all the cynics who attack their ideas and then they knock them down but they've got nothing to put in their place and he's just about to talk about discipline when the whole stage starts catching fire and as he's delivering this speech <laughs> about the need to be disciplined yeah. everyone's sort of running around in blind panic and that is a wonderfully it's mercilessly black humour yeah. of just, you know, these ideals are dead and get over it because they're just not relevant anymore. In terms of the performances, I mean, I think that Malcolm McDowell, no pun intended, is magnificent. Yeah. And, you know, like I say, there is a close comparison with Clockwork Orange. There's also, I suppose, a little bit of comparison with Full Metal Jacket, if you want to stick with the Kubrick reference, because there is... 
The sequence where McDowell is being beaten in the gym is a bit like the boot camp sequences at the start of Full Master Jacket, yeah. where, you know, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman is laying into Private Parlor, and the idea is that the more exposure you have to brutality, the more determined it actually makes yeah. you to rebel, and it's the idea of the perfect machine yeah. going wrong. And although Kubrick and Anderson do direct in totally different ways, they both use McDowell superbly, because McDowell, and certainly in that period, he had these kind of, these huge puppy dog eyes and the, the, the perfectly sort of groomed hair, the curled lips and the upstart demeanor. There's a great story about when they were filming the sequence of uh, Travis fencing in the gym. Mm. Um, so some of the shots in which you can see Malcolm McDowell's tongue sticking out, because he wasn't, this was his first film and he didn't really know how to work the camera, he was sort of concentrating so much on the fencing that he forgot to actually act with the rest of his face. <laughs> and yeah. he, and, he and Lindsay Anderson were at the rushes the next day when you see the, the previous day's filming, and Lindsay said, no, I can't use any of this, because it's clear that you're not playing the character, and he's, he's yeah. like, no, you need to learn how to use your face. And Malcolm said, oh, can we do it again then? He said, no, of course we can't do it again, we've got no money left now, <laughs> so I'll just cut around yeah. your face and we'll get the impression that you're being, you're fighting and so forth. The thing about McDowell that sort of nails it for me is his voice. I mean, yes, he has, it's that wonderful blend which, the, which sort of epitomizes the film of elegance but also impudence. Yeah. And there's that wonderful line when he's being confronted by the prefects just before they're going to beat him. And they said, do you have anything to say for yourself? And he says, yes, I do. The thing I hate about you, Roundtree, because one of the prefixes yes. is called Roundtree, yeah. is the way you give Coca-Cola to your scum and your best teddy bear to Oxfam. <laughs> and expect us to lick your frigid fingers for the rest of your frigid life. And then it cuts to the prefect, just stony face, so yes. I've been exposed. Yeah. So, he's just fantastic. We talked a little bit about the visuals of If um, a few weeks ago. I mean, it's a, it's a story we've told a couple of times, but it's well worth saying. Um, it's in a combination of colour and black and white. And yep. when the film was first released, there were all sorts of, in the way that critics often do, they try and read artistically into it, saying, hmm. Oh, just lack of money. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, all these critics were saying, you know, oh, these are the, everything in black and white is a dream. Everything in black and white is, you know, the old order. When in fact, Lindsay Anderson, well, there's two versions. Either he just ran out of money, or the sections that are in black and white, it was easier to light in black yeah. and white, because you know, the sequences in the cathedral when you've got stained glass coming through, and it's very difficult to do when you've got no money. And I think in the end, the, the visuals don't add much, but they, the film benefits from this sort of happy accident in yeah, terms of does, creating yes, an identity. Yeah. And Anderson's direction is very, very understated insofar as he knows where to put the camera and he knows how to light a scene, but as with his work with the British New Wave, it's very much like the characters have to create this world for themselves and I'm just observing. And if I can capture it from the best possible angle, then I'm doing yeah. my job. As opposed to what Kubrick does, which is I have a very clear point of view and then the actors have to sort of move around to fit in with that point of yeah. view. I mean, both are great filmmakers, but it's a very different approach. So, to sum it up, it is every bit as incendiary and as perfect as it was over 40 years ago. I think that Anderson is a truly exceptional director. The performances are great. The balance between impudence and elegance, naturalism and surrealism is no perfect. It is a truthful product of its time and a work of total genius. Film. And if you haven't seen it, go and see it right now. Yeah. That was Daniel Mumby reviewing uh, If, our cult classic film from a few weeks ago. Do hope you've enjoyed our slightly different programme that we've done this week. Uh, I certainly have. We're back live uh, next Saturday between 10 and 11. And next week's cult classic will be Oh, a Lucky Man. Have a great week. We're back with you next Saturday. I'm here at 8 o'clock. The latest news. Lion Heart Radio. Voice of Northumberland